We are continuing in our teaching series called Enduring Kingdom, about the kingdom of God that is uh, established now through the reign of King David. It's a journey through the book of 2 Samuel, and we're kind of halfway through it now, and really come to uh, the crisis moment of the storyline. We had the, the, the climax, the most important part of the story, a few weeks ago with the the covenant God makes with David, and now we come to a crisis moment. My wife tells me that any good piece of literature has crisis in it. So here we go. This morning is crisis time. Before we jump into it, let me just uh, tell a joke. This is a Jerry Seinfeld joke, so you understand why I like it. Jerry Seinfeld says this, uh, the the safest place you can be when a serial killer is on the loose is next door to the serial killer, right? Because when you're next door to the serial killer, you have to be preserved so that you can vouch for his or her character after he is caught by those around, right? And you've seen, you've seen that on the news or whatever, not just serial killers, uh, heinous crimes, and I don't say that to, to make light of the crimes, but it's always the next door neighbor saying, gosh, you seem like such a great person, right? <laughs> I can't understand it. Well, we, friends, are the next-door neighbors, because it seems to us that David is a really great person, and we're about to be interviewed by the news and have to say, I didn't see this coming, because it turns out he's not only a liar, and he's not only a liar and someone who covets his neighbor's wife, he's not only a liar and someone who covets his neighbor's wife and an adulterer, he's not only a liar, someone who covets his neighbor's wife and an adulterer, but he's also a murderer. And this is the guy who God has said is my anointed king. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I want to read through it quickly. This is what the storyteller writes. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Remember we talked about this last week. Uh, the divided army, Joab to the Ammonites, and Abishai down to the Arameans, and the Ammonites flee, and they go behind their walls, and now Joab is laying siege to them. This is all that is taking place, and David's back in Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, and she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came home, David asked him how Joab was how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. This phrase doesn't make any sense to us, but it is a Jewish euphemism for go home and be intimate with your wife. Okay? Don't ask me why or how, but this is what he's saying. Uh, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all the master servants. It did not go down to his house. 
David was told Uriah never went home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you come home from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will never do such a thing. But David says to him, well, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on the mat amongst the master servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jereb, uh, Jereb Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an, an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. What's going on there, friends, is that it seems that David as a commander had given specific instructions throughout his military conquests to take every precaution to guard the lives of his soldiers, to not foolishly send them into places where they would be in danger. And here he's asking to do the exact opposite. Uh, The messenger sent out, and where he'd arrived, he told David everything Joab had said to him. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. In opening a sermon on this very passage of Scripture, John Calvin, the great Geneva theologian, said this, that this is such a story that every time you think of it, your hair should stand straight up on end. This is stunning what has happened here. For many of us who have kind of grown up in the church, we're used to this big David screws up story, and we fail to see it in its bigger context. This is absolutely stunning what has happened here. We are the next door neighbor saying, but he, not him, 
He's the nicest guy. Didn't you see how he treated Mephibosheth, the crippled boy, and, and how nice he was to Hanan, the king of the Ammonites? And he was leading, and he loved God, and he, he was a man after God's own heart. But this, this, you must have the wrong guy. I never knew him like this. This is absolutely stunning what has happened here. That David in his lust has coveted a neighbor's wife, has taken her and has committed adultery, and then, to make matters far worse, has tried to lie and cover it up, and when he could not succeed because of Uriah's faithfulness to God's law, he plots to have him killed. Who does this? Not David. And yet, as Kelly read earlier, the Apostle Paul would say to us, now take note, church, this has been written down so that you can learn from it. We're told that the winners write the history. Well, David was still winning at the end of this, and this is still in here, and it's still in here because the Holy Spirit wants us as a local church and us as the church uh, in total, us combined with every other follower of Jesus, past, present, and future, to be reminded that if David could do something like this, what about people like us, right? What about people like us? So this is a stunning fall. Let's, let's talk just a little bit about it, about what's going on here, that, that the storyteller really wants to show us the dramatic nature of what's happening here. The story of 2 Samuel, if you've kind of been reading along as we go, it flies at like 30,000 feet, right? It is not digging into all the details of things. Battles are being won in one and two verses, right? And, and the nation is spreading out and all these great things are happening. And it is now at this moment where the story comes to a screeching halt and we are privy to very uncomfortable specifics and details because the storyteller is flashing lights for us. David, up to this point, his whole story, the dramatic rise of David to power and to leadership over the nation of Israel has been known by his love for God and his obedience to God, his full dependence upon God. Think about it. God says of him, he's a man uh, who's after my own heart. We have in David the man who has such dependence upon God that he would stand up to the giant Goliath when all of the armies of Israel wouldn't do it. And then when he's promised the kingship, he stands in humility and service to the lame duck king Saul. He won't take his throne. He's fully dependent upon God's timing and waiting for it always. And now... Something has shifted dramatically because whereas David was once dependent upon God and worshiping God, now we have a very different David. A David who is acting in his own power and acting for his own glory. There are tons of action words in this chapter and they are almost all attributed to David. He saw, he asked about, he sent for, he laid with, he took. David is moving in his own power. He's calculating. He's controlling. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants. And he's uninhibited in his power and going for it. And friends, let's just clear up some confusion about this passage. 
The only temptation or tempter that David is facing is David himself. Right? You hear it? Satan is not there uh, in the way that Satan appears to Adam and Eve. He's not there tempting in the way that he appears to Jesus. This is David dealing with David's own flesh. And Bathsheba, we quite frankly are not told a lot about what is going on in the story. But the worst possible thing that can be said about Bathsheba in this story is that she perhaps willingly committed adultery with David. And I would suggest to you probably that's not even the best reading of this story. It sounds like this is a power rape, right? Now, we don't like to say that about guys like David, but let's just be honest with each other. When the king comes and sends for you and he says, I'm going to have sex with you, she probably has no choice, right? And she is thrust into all of this. And lest we believe some of the fairy tales about Bathsheba, she was not up in a hot tub on a roof, right? She was not skinny dipping in some primitive Israelite, you know, spa location. She was ritually cleansing herself from her monthly cycle. She was being Torah obedient. She was not some seductress of the king, and he was too weak. And after all, women shouldn't do these things, because don't they know men are weak? This is about the issue of a man's power and lust and his own temptation. Bathsheba is a victim. She is not a temptress. Do you see it? We try to shift blame, and men, we know how that goes, right? We try to shift blame because it's really hard to deal with the truth. And it's really hard to deal with the truth about a spiritual giant like David. But James understands this, because in James chapter 1, this is what he says. He says, we are tempted when we are led astray, listen, by our own desires. That oftentimes we love to attribute to Satan and to the demonic forces of this world, and let me be certain to say to you, They are real, and they are active, and they are battling against the advance of the kingdom. But you know who else is battling against the advance of the kingdom? Your flesh that does not want to submit to God's authority in your life. And this story is about David's flesh battling with his allegiance to God. And quite frankly, it should scare us because it is a story about his flesh winning what seems to be an easy victory over his allegiance to God. And this is a man who's after God's own heart. This is terrifying on some level. David, fully given to lust and power, and goes after it, right? And we see his power and that he takes this woman and he has his way with her. And the story seems to imply to us that then he's just going to discard her. Never wants to talk to her or see her again. He has his fulfillment, what he needs in that moment. And the only reason she's thrust back into the story is she's pregnant, right? And he should have known, right, if she's ritually cleansing herself, that this could be a possibility. But let's not get into timelines and details. David, uh, to quote what one preacher says, is a through and through creep. He's a jerk. He's vile and disgusting in what he does. 
But listen, there's more. This is even more stunning than just that. Because we'll read at the end of 2 Samuel, there's this list in the next to last chapter that talks about what is called David's mighty men, right? These are the 37 men who are David's most trusted people. They were there for him when Saul was after him. They were protecting him. They were guarding him. David trusted them with everything. And do you know who two of them were? Uriah the Hittite and Eliam, who was Bathsheba's dad. So here we have in the previous chapters, David bending over backwards for Mephibosheth and for Hanan, some king in Ammon, and yet unwilling to show kindness of any kind to his two closest friends. This is stunning. And then... We find in Uriah and Bathsheba, the victims of this story, two people who are devoutly following the law of God, the very thing David is supposed to be known by. And we have in David someone who in one chapter basically takes the Ten Commandments and destroys them, right? I mean, you list the Ten Commandments, and he's done them all wrong, right? Lying, coveting your neighbor's wife, adultery, murder. This is a stunning turn of events. After all, it's always been David who is after God's law and other people who are trying to convince him not to be. And now everything is different. And so we take Paul's advice and we say, we need to take notice. And so then we are forced to ask ourselves a really difficult question. And a question that the text doesn't necessarily answer in its fullness, but we've got to to mine it a little bit. And the question is, how does this happen? Right? How does something like this happen? Now, the text doesn't give us all the inner workings of David's thoughts. We don't understand if David has seen Bathsheba before. We don't understand if he's really annoyed at Uriah right now. We understand sometimes there's breaks in friendships or whatever. We don't know how he's plotting, what's going on. We don't know why he's back home in Jerusalem and not with his army elsewhere. But the text does give us two important clues that help us understand what leads, at least in part, to this stunning fall. And the first thing is that David refuses to take account of the cracks in his own armor, right? We've been noting kind of along the way how the storyteller kind of mentions these little barbs, right? And David had all these wives. And we're always kind of like used to reading that and saying things like, well, that's what they did back then, you know? But of course, the storyteller is telling us to say, there's something wrong here. This is not how God created this to be. And he's making note of that, but he's also kind of letting us see that the rest of the people and David himself aren't really taking any of this into account. And we've kind of pulled back the curtain a little bit too and seen that most of these wives he has married for political gain and to extend his power. And even bringing back his first wife, Michael, was not to be redeeming in that relationship. It was to kind of shore up his support from the Saul faction of Israel since Michael was Saul's daughter. It's all about his power. It's all about his gain. It's all about these things. See, David is kind of standing secure when he really ought to be shaking in his boots. 
The storyteller has been warning us. And at the same time, he's been letting us know that David isn't even taking any of these things into account. Kelly read earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul records the, the realities of Israel in the wilderness and how they fell in tremendous ways, not unlike how David fell. And he says, listen, if you think you are standing firm, then be careful. You may be about to fall. And Paul is speaking to the Corinthians to say, listen, you think you are so spiritually mature, you're speaking in tongues, you're doing all these things, signs of the Spirit are happening there, and we affirm that, but you take that to think that you're on this high platform, you're better than everyone else, and he's saying, listen, look back at the history of the people of God and realize you are in danger when you don't take into account regularly your human brokenness and weakness. And David, the same thing is happening here. It's easy for David to be weak when he's hiding in a cave in Adullam and and Saul's army is following after him. It is not easy to be aware of his weakness when he has conquered all of of the, the enemies of Israel, when he has seen the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, when he has risen to such levels of power. And it's in that moment when you stop being cognizant of the brokenness of yourself that you set yourself up for the possibility of failure, and quite frankly, even drastic and dramatic failure. And here we have it in David. See, the truth is that the cracks in David's armor really reveal a significant and internal problem for King David. And that's that he has a prideful and rebellious heart. A prideful and rebellious heart. Not unlike the rest of Israel, not unlike Adam and Eve, not unlike us, a prideful and rebellious heart. And see, the the cracks in our armor are meant not simply to show us what we might do, but also to enlighten us about the significant condition of our own hearts, right? We've talked about it this way, and I don't know if this is the best way to talk about it, but it makes sense to me. I, I, I say there's what's called sin, lowercase s, sin, and there's sin, what I call capital S, sin, right? Now, that is not to say that some sins are more than others. That's beside the point. The lowercase s, sin, is the kind of the external things that happen, the things that we do, the attitudes, the behaviors, the brokenness. It's the coveting the neighbor's wife. It's the lusting after things. It's the lying. These are the sins that are breaking through the surface Right? But if we are simply just running a lawnmower over them to kind of cut them down and not realizing the capital S sin, that is the rebellious, prideful heart that is driving them inside, then we will never, never gain victory over them. The prophet Jeremiah said it like this, the heart is deceitful. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And you might say, well, that's fine, Adam, but how can you diagnose David with a prideful and rebellious heart? Because David diagnosed himself. The next chapter, Nathan will come to David and say, listen, God knows everything that you did. And here's the result of it. And in David's great psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, this is what he famously says. Create in me a clean heart, O God. 
He does not say, renovate in me a new heart, O God. He says, create in me. That is, you must start from scratch. My heart is deceitful and desperately sick. He finally has awareness of the issue within that is driving him. Friends, I do not know where you find yourself in life, and the point of my sermon this morning is not to give you some guilt trip, because that is not the gospel. But we would be remiss if, in light of David, we did not stop, whether we are in a cave in Adullam or high on the rooftop overlooking a city that we rule and reign over, and be aware of the state of our heart and what the result may be. The first thing that leads to David's fall is he does not take account of the cracks in his armor. And the second thing, and this seems pretty obvious in this story, and it's pretty easy or pretty succinct to say, David lingers, right? He lingers. So the story is kind of written to say, oh, he saw this woman and he asked who she was and they said Bathsheba and he sent for her and then they had sex together. But it doesn't happen this way. You know that. It's not possible that way. It's probably true that David took a nap late in the afternoon. It was spring. It was warm. This was kind of common culture for that day. After all, he was a king. He probably did get up, and he probably did walk around, and I'm certain he did see Bathsheba doing a ceremonial washing, because that was about the time she would do it, right? Probably at some part, some place in her courtyard with a, with a, a jar or an urn uh, full of water. Uh, I would suggest to you she was fully clothed, because that's how they did, and that she was not and stripped naked to ceremonial cleanse, ceremonially cleanse herself, right? And so he didn't just say, oh, there's a woman washing her legs or her hands right there. I should have sex with her, right? It doesn't go like that. He pauses, and he notices her beauty, right? And he lingers there, and his thoughts give way undoubtedly to imagination, St. Augustine says that temptation begins in our imagination. And in our imagination, it gives way to our desire, and our desire gives way to our will. See, David unnecessarily gave time for his imagination to be unleashed in the moment. And once it was too far gone, he couldn't reel it back in. Now, it doesn't seem in the story that he wanted to reel it back in, but it also tells us that that he couldn't reel it back in. That in his imagination, David's heart was already gone long before he committed the act of adultery. Of course, it's this realization that would lead Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount to say, You say don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look upon a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. Why? Because Jesus knows. (laughs) He understands how it works and how it moves. This is what Martin Luther said. If you don't remember anything else, remember this quote because it's fantastic. This is what Martin Luther said about temptation. Luther has a certain way with words. He says, listen, there's nothing I can do if a bird wants to fly over my head. Now, I don't like birds, so I say there's some things you could do. But Luther says there's nothing you could do, right? And there's truth to that. Nothing it can do if a bird wants to fly over my head. He says, but I don't have to let it make a nest in my hair, right? Right? Luther, he's got a way with words, right? 
And his point is well taken. David is going to look and he's going to see a beautiful woman. There's nothing he can do about that, and it's okay for that to happen. But he does not have to sit there and let his imagination go wild and let this bird make a nest in his hair. David unnecessarily lingers, and it's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, right after the passage that Kelly read, Paul's urge to the Corinthians in light of the history of Israel is to flee immorality. The opposite of lingering is fleeing. The word flee in the Greek has to do with giving no consideration. You get the idea. Not giving space for the imagination to go crazy. And instead, removing yourself from a situation. Now listen, there are two ways to flee, and both are important. The first way is the way that came to your mind. Just get the heck out of there, right? Get back in the bedroom and close the drapes and be done with it. It's the same way that Joseph fleed from Potiphar's wife. You remember the story in Genesis when Potiphar's wife saw that Joseph was an attractive man and she said that she wanted to have sex with him. And Joseph, it says, he just ran away. He left his garment there, which he ended up in prison because of it. He knew he had to get out of there. And David should have taken some advice from Joseph. I heard a teacher once say this. Hey, if on your way home from work, you continue to pass a billboard with a provocatively dressed woman that gives room for your imagination to go wild, do you know how you respond to that? You find a new way home from work, right? You flee, you get away. It is not weak to get out of Dodge. But there is a second reality to flee. And Thomas Akempis, the great German monk who wrote in the 14th century the book, The Imitation of Christ, the second most read Christian book, second only to the Bible. People have gone to it for, for help in their spiritual sanctification for hundreds, hundreds of years. This is what he says about temptation. If you think in, in fighting temptation that all you need to do is externally shun it, then you will have very little progress. Because you must be able to uproot it from within. Otherwise, it will continue to come back. And he says this, and with even more, his words, violence. Right? And so you begin to wonder, how many times did David see Bathsheba? She probably lived close. He probably knew who she was long before he asked. And while it is necessary sometimes to get out of Dodge, it cannot always be our answer. And so we turn again to Paul who says to the Corinthians in his second letter to them, you must take every thought captive to Christ. This is a spiritual weapon, he suggests. What does that mean? It means not lingering in your thought or your imagination but attacking it immediately with the truth of the gospel, right? Now listen, if you are continually battling and attacking something with it and it is not going away, not going away, go back to option number one and get the heck out of there. 
but also learn to bring the gospel to bear on the temptations of life. What if David said, look at how God has provided for me. I don't need this. What is going on in my heart? There's something deep and dark going on in my heart. But then you begin to apply the gospel to it, that in spite of it, God loves me. In spite of it, God has blessed me. That there's actually greater life in the life that God is bestowing upon me than on this momentary gain that I feel like I can have, this momentary act of lust or of pleasure or what have you. Can I tell you a story without you thinking less of me? Let me, let me pause. Can I tell you a story and you will think less of me? <laughs> uh, a week and a half ago, we were stranded on Stefco Boulevard, straight out of gas, right next to the Wawa. And I went in to the Wawa thinking, oh, at least we're right next to the Wawa. And I said, I need to buy a gas container. And there were a couple teenagers who were working there, and they looked like they had zero interest in helping me. My frustration was building, right? And they said, well, we have gas cans right over here. And so I went over there, and there were no gas cans there. And she said, well, then I'm sorry, we're sold out. She said to me, you're out of luck. And I said, ooh, that stinks. I said, you don't understand, like my van with my kids and my wife is right out there and it's out of gas. You must have something here that I can transport gas in. And she said to me, sorry. And I responded, uh, and I responded in an inappropriate way. I, I threw what amounts to a temper tantrum at a Wawa with a couple of teenagers who must have thought this guy is an idiot. He's losing his mind. I made comments about Wawa and what a terrible gas station it was and you know how could this be and all these other things. There were some words that I should have never said. But here's the truth of the matter. The reason that I exploded in Wawa was not because they didn't have a gas can. It was not because we were stranded on the street with gas. If you know me, I'm more prone to laugh at a situation like that than to explode. Here's what had happened. Jackson was uh, involved in a project called What's So Great About Manufacturing. He and a couple of other students from East Hills had produced a video, and they were to go to the big awards banquet at the ArtsQuest Center, and it was to happen. He needed to be there at 6, and this was a huge thing. Thousand, a thousand people were going to be there. Uh, but Jackson also had jazz band practice with a special conductor that afternoon, which was from 3 to 5. So we had talked to Jackson and said, listen, You need to be out of there at 5 so we can get you dressed uh, into a shirt and tie and get you where you need to go. And at 5 o'clock, I was waiting in the parking lot for Jackson. And at 5.01, I was waiting for Jackson. And at 5.05, and at 5.10, and at 5.15, and at 5.20, and no lie, at 5.25, I was pounding on the windows of East Hills Middle School where I thought the band room might be. Right? This is true. Other parents are like, what's that guy doing? And at 5.35, Jackson comes strolling out. And I said, what's going on? And he said, well, they decided we should just eat dinner together afterwards. And they were down in the bowels of the school in the cafeteria consuming a wonderful pizza dinner while I was freaking out upstairs, feeling completely and utterly disrespected by my son, who I had told to be out at 5 o'clock. And then when we got home... And we got dressed, and we got back in the car to go. Uh, Wives, just let me give you a bit of advice that will help you love your husbands. There was no gas in the car that my wife drives that we were taking, and her 
her response was, well, I thought we'd just stop at Giant on the way. And my response was, that's a great plan, but those plans are long gone. And so, of course, we ended up on Stefco Boulevard, and I ended up having a major breakdown in the Wawa. Uh, so if, if my picture's up there when you're in there next, you know, <laughs> you know what happened. But what's the problem? Why did I freak out there? Why did, why did I have the breakdown there? Because I was lingering in what I perceived as disrespect from all the way back at 5 o'clock. I couldn't let it go. I couldn't gospel myself. I couldn't find identity in Christ. I had to be respected by my wife and my son. And how could they do that? 14-year-old kid who loses track of time, right? Impossible. (laughs) And all of that led to that moment. And so let's not just think that it's David and it always ends in murder. And let's not just think that lingering means you've got to get away when you see a beautiful woman. It means all of the cracks that you are aware of, right? One of the big cracks for me is I need to be respected. And instead of giving awareness to it, I fell right into the trap. And when the temptation came, I lingered. Oh, man, did I linger. And then my flesh won such an easy victory over me. Who knows the damage that I caused in that moment? Friends, the story of David is recorded not simply because it happened, but because it will happen. Because we are broken. And so we are left with a bit of a crisis, aren't we? The first crisis is, if this could happen to David then you better believe it can and will happen to you. And this is exactly why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in a very specific way. Lead us not into temptation. Right? Now where had Jesus just come from when he delivered that method of praying? From the wilderness and temptation. And what is he teaching his disciples in that prayer? If you have to face what I just faced, you will not be victorious. So Jesus teaches them to pray. Lead us not into temptation. But there's a bigger question to ask. And that is, if this could happen to David, then who is qualified to be God's anointed? We understood Saul was a bad dude. And we already kind of know the guys coming after David aren't so great. But this is David. And so I point you right back to Jesus. Who right after he's baptized and right after God says, this is my son, a.k.a. this is my anointed king, is led by the Spirit into temptation. And he faces not his internal flesh but Satan himself in the flesh. And where Adam and Eve fell flat, and where the Israelites wandered for 40 years, and where David, a man after God's own heart, was corrupted by his own flesh, Jesus was untouched. He was victorious. He overcame the temptation that was there. And in so doing proved himself to be exactly what God had announced him to be. And yet, 
his story moves him to a crisis on a cross where the penalty for men and women who cannot resist temptation was finally delivered, but not on us. Instead, on him. And three days later, when he rose from the dead, God announced that life and victory could only be found in Jesus. And so Paul is right when he says to the Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has come on you except that which is common to man. In other words, not even close to what Jesus faced. And God is faithful. What does that mean? Does that mean that he's faithful, that he's going to like, well, he'll just pick you up and get you out of that? No, it means he's going to stick with you when you fall on your face or when you walk through it smelling like roses. God is faithful. And he will give you opportunity to climb out. He'll give you a way out. The Greek there, way out, is used in extra-biblical literature of armies that made a stunning escape from a rocky area where they were surrounded by an army and through a mountain pass escaped into victory. And the imagery is so clear to us, isn't it? There is no way that we can be anything other than David. And yet, because of Christ, the ability to flee is one, possible, and two, probable in the end because of Jesus' victory for us. Can I pray with you?